Hello, and welcome to another edition of Brussels Sprouts. I'm Andrea Kendall-Taylor. I'm Jim Townsend. And we're so glad you can join us. Today, we are continuing our series of rapid reactions to the crisis provoked by Russia's military buildup on Ukraine's border. Over the past day or so, there has been a dizzying number of new developments, which are concerning. This morning, the Kremlin formally accused the United States of ignoring the package nature of its proposal for security guarantees and instead choosing only to address convenient topics uh, and insisting that it will therefore be forced to respond through measures of a military technical nature. This comes amid signs that Russia is creating pretexts for conflict, including spreading false claims of a genocide in Donetsk and Luhansk, as well as shelling a Ukrainian village in the Donbass in an apparent attempt to bait Ukrainian forces into responding. Uh, As the Biden administration continues its preparations for an attack during the next few days, we are pleased to welcome Sam Cherup to the podcast to discuss how we should be interpreting this rapid stream of worrying news. Uh, Sam, welcome. Thanks so much for having me. Um, By quick way of background, Sam is a senior political scientist at the RAND Corporation, where he focuses on the foreign policies of Russia and the former Soviet states, as well as on European and Eurasian regional security. He's written widely on Ukraine, including his 2017 book titled Everyone Loses the Ukraine Crisis and the Ruinous Contest for Post-Soviet Eurasia. Um, All right. Do you want to just give us a lay of the land, Um, especially the last kind of 24, 48 hours, kind of what are some of the events that are most salient and top of mind um, as you're kind of trying to sift through uh, this onslaught of information? Yeah, it is is quite a um, uh, drinking from a firehouse moment here between actually consuming the real information and then sorting through the not real information. Um, so I think if we were to take a step back, what's happened in the last 24 to 48 hours is that the, the sort of political dynamics have sort of finally are moving into line with the military posturing. I mean, we've seen uh, this, you know, deliberate buildup of an incredibly threatening military posture, um, basically the final pieces of a uh, required for a massive military operation being put into place in the last couple of weeks. We've seen critical enablers move to the front and even some reports about, you know, the, the camps or the sites, relatively permanent sites being emptied and moved even closer to the border. Um, and yet the, the political signaling up to now has been um, ambiguous uh, and, you know, certainly a long way away from justifying what seems to be afoot militarily. And now I think we're seeing that come into place that, you know, basically the, the emphatic nature of the, of the Ministry of Foreign Affairs delivered response to the, to the U.S. response to the Russian proposal feels like we're playing some sort of 19th century correspondence game here, but, um, uh, and the increasing uh, Russian media, state media, and other um, focus on allegations of Ukrainian um, actions in the Donbass, you know, ranging from like the investigative committee launching a actual formal criminal case yesterday to, to these allegations of 
uh, genocide being leveled at the UN today and uh, kindergarten being shelled and so on and so forth. So, um, you know, it's not an easy thing to sell uh, a war on Ukraine to the Russian people and the world of this uh, size. Um, And so, you know, I think that it had been surprising that there hadn't been the same level of political justification sort of ramping up with the military ramp up. And now I guess we're seeing it pretty flimsy and it looks even all the more flimsy for having been exposed in advance by the US government. Um, But, uh, you know, ultimately it's a pretext. It's not like the actual reason why they, they would be invading. So. Uh, I don't think it has to be, um, it doesn't have to convince me in order for it to be considered to be good enough from from, from the Russian government's perspective. I think that's what, what you know, lots, I have lots of people asking, I mean, the U.S. government has done such a good job at kind of coming out and warning about the fact that Russia would look to create a pretext declassifying information to say what that pretext might be. And in some ways, maybe that's put the Kremlin on the back foot. But I think a lot of, you know, your point about who is the audience of these presumed pretexts, because now, you know, the United States, I think, has done a good job at trying to at least control the narrative to some degree. We saw Secretary Blinken making this unexpected trip to the UN today, again, to kind of lay out the case and frame Russia as the aggressor in this situation. So who, you know, when, when it, so it, it almost to some Western eyes looks silly for Russia to still be trying to create these pretexts, even, even though we all know full well what they're doing. So who, I mean, just to hear you talk about who is the audience for these efforts to, to create this kind of pretext? So um, I would, I think there are two answers to that question. Um, One is, I do think that there's a domestic audience because, um, you know, uh, like leveling an apartment building in Kharkiv of like Russian speaking Ukrainians is not something that like the Russian people are just in the abstract going to be supportive of. Um, You know, there are tons of, of personal familial connections between Russians and Ukrainians um, and, you know, even lots of ethnic Ukrainians or people with Ukrainian last names in high places in Russian politics. I mean, this is not, it's going to, you know, I think that was part of the reason why the involvement in the, in the war in the Donbass was concealed to begin with. Um, So justifying what will be, what would, might be, you know, a really significant military operation with a high level of casualties um, uh, is, I think, a domestic uh, sine qua non. I think they can manage that, even if it won't convince me or you. It might convince, you know, your average uh, Channel One viewer. Uh, I do think there's another piece of this, though, too, which is um, Russia is never going to say, we are attacking Ukraine. Um, it will be portrayed as defensive and uh, in some way or justified in some way. I don't see them up and saying like, we don't care about the UN charter anymore. They will construe what they do in some way as being consistent with international norms. Um, I think that's sort of how it's been since 14, uh, since the, you know, the, the, the first Ukraine crisis, so to speak, like Crimea, it's not territorial annexation. It was the you know right of self determination. That's why there was this whole referendum thing, and you know the denial 
really to this day of any Russian military presence in the Donbass. Um, uh, because admitting it would be admitting that you're, you know, by your own definition, like have been invading another country for eight years. And so great powers don't admit when they violate the rules, I think in the Russian sense, the understanding of how the world works, they get to violate the rules, but they have to come up with sort of elaborate explanations as to why rule breaking is actually rule compliance. I know Jim wants to ask a question, but one quick follow-up, because I might add like another category of audiences, which is other maybe like sympathetic, potentially sympathetic audiences outside of Russia. So I'm thinking particularly of China. And so if they can kind of pick up on some of these Russian narratives, then presumably it makes it a lot easier for Beijing to stand with or, you know, be supportive of Russia during this because they can, again, you know, present this narrative of Russia under attack. It's Ukraine, it's United States, it's NATO, and Russia is this kind of under siege, defense, defensive actor. Would you do you agree with yeah. that? I mean, thinking of like Absolutely. the I mean, and all these folks. Yeah, I mean, I think that the it's the the line is going to be not that like NATO enlargement justifies Russia's territorial aggression against Ukraine. It will be that you know uh, China will have good talking points, at least I think not good talking points, but some talking points about why this is somehow justified uh, under international law. I mean, it's going to stretch credulity if they really go through with the scale of the operation, and that somehow I, I can't square that in my head myself yet. But uh, maybe maybe that's you know Putin is sort of past caring about these things, so it just needs the flimsiest um, cover. But like how you could justify. Um, the scale of the operation that they seem to be contemplating. I mean, you know, it just seems like uh, even even if there were, a, you know, like a quote unquote genocide ongoing in the Donbass, therefore you, you get to Kiev from there. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, I know. I'm I think pretty... that's what I'm worried about, Sam. What you said though, that Putin just may be past the point of caring, and as long as there's at least a flimsy context, he's he's kind of just like. I mean, he's already demonstrated with the way that he's, they're treating diplomats, you know, the, the way, you know, the UK foreign minister, or the, the um, UK prime minister, no, what, who is a foreign minister when she went. Um, there's just kind of this real disregard of diplomacy. And I know that's always been there, but it seems particularly brazen and confrontational, even in the wake of 2014. There feels something a little bit different that I'm having a hard time putting my finger on. Trump, yeah. Yeah, and I would say even that he's he's being dismissive of his own diplomats. I mean, I think basically what he's telling the MFA is like, figure it out, you know, like go come up with some public justification. I'm going to go do what I'm going to go do with the guys who, you know, can can do stuff, um, i.e. the people in uniform. But um, yeah, so I, I agree that may, maybe, I mean, you know, the MFA is basically being asked to play cleanup um for the yeah sorry jim no well uh, th this has been great this has been very very helpful but let me ask you how how do you how would you explain this to the american people i mean i get this question all the time uh from from the media and they'll say well would you explain to the american people why we should care about ukraine why are we devoting so much time and attention to this we have so many problems here in this country uh the president's got this huge domestic agenda and he's now having to spend a lot of time on this uh, Ukraine's not even in NATO. Ukraine's got a beef uh, with Russia and vice versa. And there's people in, in Ukraine who 
who seem to want to be part of Russia. I mean, how do you how do you how would you explain it to people at, from 30,000 feet? How would you explain it that uh, Ukraine is important uh, enough to us so that we need to do this? We'll do what exactly, though? I mean, <laughs> we need to be devoting so much time and attention to it. And that suddenly oh. it's a critical uh, U.S. national security interest, or is it? Well, I mean, you know, when in the middle of the continent that is arguably the most central to, um, it has been to, to U.S. both global presence and uh, economic prosperity, you know, a, a U.S. adversary launches a massive military uh, operation on the scale, like, you know, maybe of the invasion of Iraq in 2003, but I think it might even go beyond that. I can't remember exactly the numbers that were involved then. Um, but, uh, you know, it matters and there are going to be potential global um, consequences. So uh, if this actually does go down, Americans are going to feel it regardless of what the US government does um, whenever they fill up their, you know, gas tanks at the pump because um, the markets are going to respond to this um, regardless of what, you know, even putting aside the question of sanctions uh, and then their secondary impact on on, uh, on energy prices. So it's going to have an effect on every American, I think, um, uh, in one way or another. And, you know, it, it will be the most significant geopolitical event of, uh, uh, you know, certainly since Iraq, Probably even earlier, maybe since 9/11. I mean, it's this the uh, military operation of this scale is um, not something that happens every day, and it will be in violation of you know norms that have kept uh, the international system well, at least precluded major power conflict and um, and provided for the relative plenty that we have in this country since uh, since the end of the Second World War. So, you know, stakes are pretty high. Um, they aren't, you know, I, uh, at the same time, like there's going to be a day after, which I think we got to start thinking about now. Um, I don't really have good answers to that, but like. No, the after know. is really hard. And I know that's kind of where we're all trying to go. But Sam, I know one of the things that we've talked about too, though, is the potential for kind of a spiraling uh, escalation of responses. Um, can you talk a little bit about some of the things that you're most concerned about? Sure. So I think I would point to two categories of concern. Um, one is how the Russians will respond to uh, our quote unquote go high and or stay high and start high and stay high sanctions uh, policy. Uh, I don't expect them to take it sitting down, particularly if it causes a significant economic shock in 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 Russia and potentially with you know the political consequences. So I would expect them to retaliate, and um, they're quite capable of retaliating in the cyber domain, particularly. And that's what I'd be worried about. On the and then you know we'll, we we wouldn't have to be able to just take that and not respond, and then you, know, you could sort of see the this escalation spiral stem out from there. Second bit is that you know yes, it's clear that neither Russia nor the United States or its NATO allies want a Russia NATO conflict out of this. Uh, but regardless of what they want, um, 
they might end up in one, or at least we're going to be much closer to having the, the, the escalatory risks will be much higher if Russia's conducting major military operations on a state that borders uh, one, two, three, four, including maritime, I guess, five, seven, six countries, uh, NATO member states. Um, so, uh, and you know, the Russian forces will be operating as in like conducting operations much closer to the Polish border than, you know, we've, that has been the case since, you know, since the Soviet Union was around. Um, so the, it just, you could see things spiraling quickly there. Moreover, the US is going, the US military is going to have to do undertake things that aren't going to be intended to, you know, even necessarily uh, counter Russia directly. Like there's gonna have to be some, some military activity to evacuate Americans. There's going to have to be uh, some reassurance activities. There's, you know, and, and so on and so forth. And, but like, I could easily imagine how sitting in the general staff, you look at these different activities that are probably siloed within our own system and you see the, a potential attempt to intervene. Uh, I know there's- Never discount Russian paranoia. Yeah. Jim, I don't know if you want to jump in and if not, you know, Sam, I know like this ground has been so covered already in terms of talking about what it is that you think that Putin wants out of this, but I don't, I mean, always appreciate your view too. I mean, there's just this debate about, is it about NATO membership? Is it about more than NATO membership? I mean, I guess what's your telling of what has, has motivated Putin in this case? Well, I wish I had a definitive answer here, but um, I think anyone who tells you they know for sure is, is probably wrong, or if they're right, they just guessed well. Um, so clearly, this a lot of this is about Ukraine, and uh, I think you know if if for example Minsk had been implemented as Russia had wanted it, I don't think we'd be here today. Um, that said, for Russia, Ukraine is like the most important element of European security. So therefore, it's embedded in this broader discussion of European security. I mean, and I think one way to interpret the diplomatic, the Russian proposals is that like basically they're willing to negotiate over the architecture um, or they'll just take Ukraine. You know, I think that, that, and maybe they'll be satisfied with that. I think, um, yeah. Well, let me ask you and, a question. I, I know we've got to we got to go in just a few minutes, but you know, you mentioned that the stakes are high. Do you think the U.S. and the alliance response has been appropriate to such high stakes? Uh, it's a it's a tough question, um, and it's easy to you know sitting in, in uh, outside of government without the pressures of, of, of the processes weighing down and made to second guess. I mean, for, on the whole, I think that uh, we've, we, that, that this, it has been um, probably about as good as you, you could have been under the circumstances. I guess what I would have said is that um, uh, if, if there's any um, criticism that I would level, it would be that um, 
we've uh, in the course of, well, okay, so there's a trade-off between what they've done very successfully by the administration, which is getting a lot of allied buy-in for everything that we do and being engaging in more of a diplomatic give and take. Now, there might not have been a deal to be had here. Um, there's a plausible argument that Russia was just not interested in, that these were just sort of like a time buying exercise um, uh, that the Russian proposals, but, you know, I would have liked to have seen a little bit more creativity on, on one or two issues. Uh, you know, I have my pet hobby horse of uh, uh, some creative framing of the reality that, you know, Ukraine is not currently on a NATO membership uh, track. Um, uh, we should be able to say that out loud. It's just like the sky's blue. Um, uh, and we, not that heard, it never be. we heard the German chancellor say similar things, right? He did, right? Um, but uh, not everyone says it, but not as a matter of policy, right? Um, and uh, I think, you know, I don't even know if you could get consensus within the NAC on that anyway, even which is sort of ironic, but you can't get consensus on stating what the actual policy is. Um, under the circumstances, perhaps understandable, given the, 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 the political dynamics created by the Russian buildup. But, uh, you know, it's, it's a tough position if given that the Ukrainian government until the last like 72 hours hasn't been particularly flexible on this issue either. Uh, now you're seeing some signals that maybe they might not be so wedded to the idea after all. Uh, they've got the problem of their own constitution, of course, thanks to Poroshenko, which is now states that NATO has, you know, membership is a, basically a constitutional obligation. Um, but, you know, I do think that this whole question of Ukraine's potential NATO membership is part of the picture here. I think the extent to which it is the only thing is clearly, it's not the only thing. Um, but it's, a, you know, it, and as, you know, Chancellor Schultz put it in his public press conference, I didn't, I didn't quite understand the difference between the public press conference and the comments made to the German press, but it is kind of odd that we're having this, you know, if, if this war really is to go down over something that's not really a thing. Because there was no consensus on offering Ukraine a map even after, before this all went down, let right. alone actually initiating membership track. That's and right. we can say, you know, Putin should know that, but I mean, I don't think that that, that like, he clearly wants something a little bit more concrete than that. And when we say yeah, he if, should have got, you know, Gorbachev should have gotten something more concrete in 1990. Well, I mean, that's a little bit of a, <laughs> you know. Sam, if they do sure. go in, which looks um, increasingly likely by the day, um, yeah. what do you think we should expect? I mean, do, do you think that this really is a kind of a significant thing where they're going to Kiev? And then the question I think that everyone asks and I know we don't have an answer to when we're all guessing, but, you know, do you think we end up in a position where they actually stay and occupy Eastern Ukraine, or is that really not the plan? So the plan and the reality though, you know, I think once the lead starts flying, you know, so many uh, forces are unleashed and, and so many unknowns come into play. And I mean, anyone who thinks they can, their, their plan is going to work after in this context. So, but, but, um, your basic question, like what, so I don't think this is going to be small if it happens. It doesn't make any sense to me as to why it would be. I mean, they've been doing small for eight years and from the Russian perspective, it hasn't worked. 
and they, in order to keep doing small, they didn't need to do this elaborate, massive buildup over the course of months, involving forces as, from as far away as like the border with Japan. Like, uh, you know, it's just, it, it sort of defies logic that they would therefore do a small incursion. Okay, Russia defies logic sometimes. So maybe that is what happens, I don't know. But uh, uh, my best guess is that they, you know, this is, a, this is what you would expect if Russia were preparing for a major military operation is what we're seeing. So, you know, logically we can conclude that it would be a major military operation. I imagine that they're conceiving of it in terms of like uh, a regime change scenario, like the invasion of Iraq minus the occupation perhaps. Um, I have a feeling that they think that they can get away with not having to be physically present in large numbers in Ukraine for the long term. They might be wrong about that, but all this uh, disclosed intelligence about trying to cultivate um, pro-Russian politicians suggests that they're looking for proxies, not, not to you know, have a sort of protectorate government or something like that. So again, I know we're at time. I just want to ask you one last question. And again, not because we have any answers, um, but just to start thinking about it. I mean, you you brought up the fact that we have to start thinking about what happens next. What are some of the like kind of the the questions for you that are top of mind? Um, yeah, this is really hard. So I don't even know what what is our objective after Russia does this. Um, we can't Ukraine can't be uninvaded, right? Um, and by the same token, although cost imposition is definitely required under the circumstances, it doesn't actually solve our problems. And it certainly doesn't solve Ukraine's problems. Um, and it doesn't make Russia disappear. So, you know, I mean, there are, I, have, I mean, you know, I would not, I don't envy the people having to make those, uh, those, those calls um, in the days and months following this, but, you know, some of the things I've been thinking about is how to convert, sanctions are going to be imposed for the invasion, um, but if they could be leveraged to achieve something uh, like Allah in the Iran nuclear deal negotiations where, you know, the sanctions were imposed for one reason and relieved for a related, but not the same exact reason, I don't know, um, because it's also hard for me to imagine that the EU can sustain these uh, start high and stay high idea as forever sanctions. Um, so, yeah, I, 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 but I don't really have any good clear answers here, and it sort of gives me, it makes my head spin trying to think about it. Um, you know, I think there should be some like basic objectives, like trying to signal our commitment to important international norms minimize human suffering in Ukraine as best we can and uh, dealing with the refugee problems that will emerge inevitably, um, you know, trying to balance uh, competing priorities in terms of what happens next. Um, I, yeah, I don't know, I don't have a good answer. You got this all figured out, Andrea? No, that's I'm still, I mean, even coming up with the questions is hard. I mean, like that, yeah. I mean, really like you, like your question, it's like, well, then what is going to be our policy objective towards Russia? What is our going to be our, do we obviously need to be thinking then about what our policy is to the other kind of in between states as 
I know you've done a lot of work on like what, you know, what does it mean for Georgia, Moldova? Uh, I mean, Belarus, maybe yeah. that's already lost, but I don't know. Is it, are we going back to a containment and we're up, you know, updating that and making it appropriate for this modern day and age? Is it something else? Like you said, what does it mean, you know, if we are putting more forces and weapon systems back into Europe, what does that mean for the Indo-Pacific and how are we going to think about balancing these two challenges? I mean, I think it's even, I mean, we're, as we think through this, it's, I'm still at the point or at the phase of even trying to formulate the right questions. And even that's kind of hard. So. But we're going to, yeah, I mean, you know, what, but we're going to do it. Jim says. (laughs) This is going to be something we're going to be the first on the block with the, with the plan. Right. You know, I mean, to, to, there there are some pieces of this that like, uh, you know, you get the immediate need for assurance and and, and deterrence of fur- further Russian aggression vis-a-vis NATO. But like, does that mean we need to throw out the NATO-Russia founding act? Are we prepared to deal with the consequences of that in terms of the remaining military restraints? Maybe, I mean, clearly the security environment is different. Maybe we just say the security environment has changed. Therefore, that clause of it is the one um, substantial combat forces no longer applies. I mean, you could get creative here, but um, uh, you know, I don't know. And uh, yeah, I mean, and this is, it, it raises lots of dilemmas about um, the instinct clearly is going to be to double down on, on whacking the Russians over the head as hard as we possibly can. And with good reason. Um, but whether that over the long term is going to get us to a place um, uh, that would be better is an open one. And I don't know that I have an alternative that could be better, let alone more politically plausible. Yeah. So, I hear you. all right. Well, I mean, that's a good kind of makes my, It's like it's, it is a gut wrenching thought process to go through. It is. It's like we started saying there was a dizzying amount of information. It's dizzying to try to think about where we go next if it is indeed kind of a significant incursion like we all think it is so yeah well we'll end with a lot of questions it's clearly something that our community is going to be spending a lot of time thinking through and um i think yeah stay tuned and hopefully we can all put our heads together and start thinking through these really tough challenges but sam thanks for doing this um and um i'm sure we'll be in touch again on this uh, as events develop yeah thank you so much. so much for having me